The reading is from Luke chapter 22, verse 66, to chapter 23, verses, verse 25. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his chief teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way. Here, on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found him in no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the word of the Lord. So um, today in our long look at holy week the events leading up to jesus crucifixion and resurrection we come to the story or perhaps i should say the stories 
of Jesus on trial. Stories, because in this section of Luke's gospel, we see Jesus facing at least four separate trials, and we're going to look at each of them in turn. Just to recap for anyone joining the series at this point, and you can go back and catch up with our podcast or on Facebook or SoundCloud, we are exploring what it means to walk with Jesus in the story of his passion from his arrival in Jerusalem to the cross and beyond. And we're doing this because as a church, our role is to become disciples of Jesus. Apprentices is probably the best way to understand the role of a first century Middle Eastern disciple today. And our understanding drawn from Jesus' teaching and his training of his first disciples is that this involves three key activities. First, being with Jesus, and that's what we're focusing our teaching on this term. Second, becoming like Jesus, that's our teaching in the summer term. And then third, learning to do what he did, or what he would do if he were us today. Um, And the plan is to get into um, looking at that in the autumn term. Um, Because in, in some way, those three aspects of being a disciple are to, uh, you know, to an extent, they're sequential. Every relationship starts with encounter, doesn't it? Being together. Presence, in turn, leads to community and commonality, being formed in someone's image. And then people who spend time together and become like-minded tend to develop community behaviors, ways of being, uh, a shared mission, if you like. Um, For evidence of this, just look at um, children or teenagers in community, or anyone else for that matter. Um, But we see it. So on this journey, uh, we've been asking what it means for us to be with Jesus on his road to the cross. And back in chapter uh, 9, I think it is, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. But the interesting thing about this part of the story, the trials, is that the disciples play no part. They're completely absent from his trials, having fled after Jesus' arrest. Next time we'll see most of them, they'll be hiding in a locked room uh, for fear of arrest. Apart from a select few that we'll encounter and see at the cross itself. Right now, Jesus is alone. He's without disciples or friends, and so I think the invitation for us is to jump across into the experience of those who were actually with Jesus in this time, the people putting Jesus on trial. So think a little bit about where we find ourselves in their story. So um, trial number one is the trial of the Jewish ruling council made up of the elders and the chief priests, the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And they say to Jesus, if you're the Messiah, just just tell us. And Jesus can see their dishonesty. They've already made up their minds. We heard Luke tell us earlier on in our series that they are now already looking for a way to condemn him. And Jesus' answer is to invoke this imagery from Daniel chapter 7, which talks about the Messiah as a son of man. So they ask him, verse 70, are you then the son of God? And Jesus replies, you said it. And in this little sequence, Jesus spells out exactly who he is. John makes it clear that Jesus knew that calling himself the son of God was to claim equality with God. 
Jesus is also saying that he is God's anointed king, the new human, the new Adam. They have what they wanted, and they take him off to Pilate. Irony is that right before them here stands the one who is the answer to all their prayers, the one they've been looking for and hoping for all this time, but they can't see it. They can't see it because Jesus doesn't fit with the mold that they have for him in their minds. And in truth, this is something that we can all struggle with. Because it's not just the many who are kind of out there, like the ruling council who have already made up their minds about Jesus, that he's not what they are looking for or expecting. It's us too. Um, I'm really enjoying reading the New Testament together with a group of, uh, from All Souls, about 12, 15 of us, I think. Each day we do our readings and we post our little comments on the passage for the day. We're midway through Matthew's gospel at the moment, and there are some really challenging, this week there's been some really challenging passages of scripture. And someone said the other day um, in, the, in the comments of after one particularly difficult thing that Jesus said, that doesn't sound like the image we have of Jesus. You know, that's not the Jesus I know. And I thought that was just the most honest, brilliant comment. <laughs> because there are bits that Jesus said that we find easy, and we tend to focus on those. But then there's plenty, he said, that is difficult to hear. You know, most especially, a lot of the time, it's because he was speaking against the religious leaders, um, which, of course, led to his trial in itself. But the point is, if we haven't found a Jesus who confounds us, who challenges us, who makes us question both him and ourselves, then we haven't really found Jesus at all. And the choice we face when we come to those moments is to either press deeper, keep asking questions, keep seeking the truth about Jesus, or to reject him because he doesn't fit into our mold. This is difficult stuff, you know, this is stuff that seasoned disciples wrestle with as much as newcomers to the faith. What will we do when Jesus surprises us and makes us question our perception of him? Will we run away or will we draw closer and keep seeking him out to understand him? You know, all the time recognizing him that if he is God and we are not, we will never fully be able to grasp and understand him completely. So that's the first trial of Jesus. It's um, a trial really about his identity. And what I thought it'd be good to do is just to pause for a moment as we go through these trials. We're just going to pause for a moment and just reflect on that for ourselves. You know, just close your eyes maybe. And just, let's just ask ourselves, have we created a mold for Jesus? Have we created a, a, in our, a mold in our, in our own image, our own understanding? Who is Jesus? And are we prepared to keep seeking him? Father, help us, give us grace when we find you not as we expected and we feel confused or troubled. Help us to trust in 
your goodness and to keep seeking to draw closer to understand better. Amen. Trial number two is before Pontius Pilate, Roman ruler, ultimate authority in town. The ruling council take Jesus to Pilate and accuse him. 23 verse 2. Um, sorry, I meant to say, we, we, we hadn't got the Bibles distributed back out. They may have been handed out to you as you came. Um, so if you want to follow along where, where we are, this is Luke 22. We're now at the beginning of Luke 23, which is on page number something. Um, if anyone's got one. No, it doesn't look like we do. Never mind, we'll get them out next week. Um, 23 verse 2. We have found this man subverting our nation. A lie. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. Another lie and claims to be Messiah, a king, which is true. They're using Pilate and Jesus for their own ends. The charges of rebellion, of course, are false. In fact, for many of them, their their disappointment with Jesus stems from his failure to lead a revolution. Remember back to his Jerusalem entrance and his tears over the city's future destruction at the hand of Rome? which happened um, in AD 70 as a result of their rebellion. This wasn't Jesus's agenda. But he's placed in the middle of a political struggle. Nothing Rome hates more than a rebel. Jerusalem wasn't the only rebellious city that was brutally put down by Caesar. But Pilate, smooth political operator that he sees, sees the opportunity to use Jesus as a pawn in his own popular power games. And he offers him to the crowd to boost his own standing. I think he expects the crowd to be pleased that Jesus will be released to them. We'll come back to that in a minute. But again, I think we can find ourselves in Pilate's tactics. The truth is we are all tempted to use Jesus to further our own agendas. In the past, this has been a a major problem at the highest levels of national and international power dynamics. Not so much in the UK today, maybe in the US a little bit more. I saw a headline this morning um, for a rally for God, guns, and Trump. You know, even in the church today, broken as we are, we come to decisions that sit right with us and then look to Jesus to back those up. It's so easy to do. We force our agenda on him. It's the grown-up version of, you know, asking God to help your football team win, which, of course, I've never done. (laughs) It makes us so furious when we see others doing this. Um, I remember when um, I was working in Luton and Britain first came to the town and they marched behind crosses through the Muslim-majority communities in our town, shouting racial slurs. I mean, how dare they? We were so, so angry. And there were some beautiful stories of of what came out, actually, as the community came together um, and kicked them out, basically. But, you know, those are the kind of the big, obvious examples. But actually, we all do it in much more subtle ways, too. As parents, as partners, siblings, work colleagues, as PCC members, and yes, even as vicars. (laughs) Most obviously, when we object to someone else. And we're very adept at thinking how unchristlike that person's attitude or behavior or idea is. And we miss how messed up and unchristlike our own thinking is about those people. Jesus is not king in order to back us up. Your kingdom come, your will be done is what we just prayed. Forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. Jesus' power can only be harnessed when we love people, not try to manipulate them. That's you know, not to say that we don't call out wrong as wrong as Jesus did, but that if we do, then as disciples of Jesus, we do it in his name and we do it with his love. So let's pause again and just we'll ask the Holy Spirit just to highlight anywhere we justify ourselves in our decisions to dishonor or write off those around us who Jesus loves, who we find difficult or objectionable or who we simply disagree with. Lord, just highlight to us now, I pray, anyone for whom we have written off in this way or used you to justify our anger or resentment towards. Lord, humble us. Give us a greater love. Help us to follow you rather than see you as someone to back us up, particularly when our motives or our attitudes are not Christ-like. Trial number three, King Herod. Now, one of the charges that's brought is that Jesus claims to be king of the Jews, which is Herod's job title, literally. He is the puppet cultural king installed by Rome for the purpose of keeping the people happy. If you sort of know the Old Testament, you know that um, Israel needs a king. Um, it's a big part of their story of what it means to be blessed and in a right relationship with God, um, certainly from um, the, the time of King David onwards. Herod, verse 8, is greatly pleased to at last see Jesus. Luke tells us that he's been wanting to meet him for a very long time. He's heard of Jesus' signs and miracles, and now he wants to see him do something impressive. And he's coming in to Jesus, or Jesus is coming in to him, and, and, and Herod is expecting to be entertained. Um, he's coming to Jesus for what he can get out of it. And it's a funny position for him to be in, uh, faced with somebody who is famous for miracles, who at the same time is a direct threat to his status. And he plies Jesus with questions, and Jesus just completely refuses to engage at this point. And once Herod sees that Jesus isn't you know, going to perform, the soldiers, he sort of hands them over to the soldiers to mock him. And uh, he's sent back to Pilate with this sort of ironic robe, on him, the king of the Jews sending the king of the Jews with a robe back to Pilate. Um, it's interesting, Luke sort of mentions, doesn't he, that actually this brings Herod and Pilate together. Before this, they didn't like each other, but, you know, they came together over mocking Jesus. Something in that. Um, you know, note, as disciples of Jesus, Jesus' response is to model non-violent resistance. He doesn't fight back here, but he does refuse to play their games. The question that this third trial 
poses, I think, is do we come to Jesus like Herod primarily on the basis of what we can get out of it? Of course, coming to Jesus is everything for us. It's hope, it's healing, it's salvation, it's love, it's acceptance and challenge and formation. It's all of those things and vocation. But if we come like Herod with our pretender's crowns on our heads, we have to recognize that he is the true king and we are not. We have to lay down our crowns. It's ultimately about him, not us. So once again, let's just take a moment to reflect. Do we come to Jesus as another means of self-fulfillment or because he's king? When Herod didn't get what he wanted from Jesus, he lost interest. Let's just search our hearts for a moment. What is our attitude as we come to Jesus today? Fourth and final trial. It's the trial of the crowd. It's the custom we read in the other Gospels that Passover for Pilate to offer pardon to one popular figure. It's a straightforward play to the crowds. Pilate throws Jesus into this equation. It's a win-win for him. Um, he doesn't seem to think that Jesus is guilty, but if the crowd choose Jesus, he frees him. If not, he kills him. Either way, he gets to make a popular decision. But there's another aspect to this trial going on. And it's a bit of a twist on what we've seen so far. From the perspective of the crowd, the trial is this. Will Jesus rise up and lead a revolution? And we've already seen his answer to that. And because of that, the crowd start chanting for Barabbas. Ironically, or perhaps not, a man convicted of leading a violent rebellion in the city. And a murderer to boot. This is verse 19. And what we see is in this trial is, is, is that it's you and me that are in the dock. Because in Barabbas, we find ourselves. Like Barabbas, we have been found guilty. Our rebellion is against God as rightful king. As we, like every human ever, has seized the crown for ourselves. And like Barabbas, the sentence that hangs over us is death. We are all subject to sin and death. That's a fact of life. But in this story, an exchange takes place. Jesus for Barabbas. The innocent for the guilty. Jesus opens up a way for, uh, to life for us. By Jesus' conviction, Barabbas is released. By his blood we too can be released. Most remarkable thing about Jesus' trial is that he was found guilty so that we could be declared innocent. That's what we discover as we walk with Jesus to the cross. He did it for you. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Jesus went through those trials, all four of them, because he loves you and he came to save you. That's the bottom line. He paid the price so that you don't have to. On Friday, we were in Liverpool 
for the funeral of Jess's granddad, Jim. And it was a privilege to lead and preach at that service of somebody who um, joined us here a couple of times at All Souls, but every week, without fail, tuned in online, joined us on Facebook. And I was able to speak of the hope of the resurrection and the life that will be Jim's because of Jesus taking the price of sin and death from him upon himself. That's the miracle of his trials. He stood in the dock in our place. And so one more time, let's just take a moment as we finish to be still and to pray.